We are patiently waiting on the promises of God. Next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. There is a lot of uncertainty in this world of ours, from COVID-19 and the aftermath to inflation, the economy, right down to our very own businesses or jobs. And we even wonder at times whether the people around us will be faithful. There's nothing sure in this world, that's for sure, but God's promises and salvation in Christ is. And Pastor Ed Taylor will focus on that today on Abounding Grace. We're back in Hebrews 6. Let's get right to it, shall we? Hebrews chapter 6, as we continue on in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Hebrews in a Bible study that I've entitled, Patiently Waiting on the Promises of God. Patiently Waiting on the Promises of God. And as we're studying through chapter 6 in Hebrews, we're learning the beauty of the saving power of God, where what God has begun, He is faithful to complete in your life. What He started, He's going to finish. And it's in the first eight verses of chapter 6 that this truth comes to life as a warning. We're warned to make sure that we're in the faith. We're warned to make sure that we're walking in obedience. Now I know that the first few verses of chapter 6 have become so controversial and everybody wants to argue about them. But oftentimes in the midst of arguments, the very essence of truth is missed. And we've studied, if you've been with us in our previous studies in Hebrews, if you haven't, you should catch up on them. We looked at the controversy, we came to a conclusion, and we rejoiced in the finished work of Jesus Christ in our lives. But for the sake of review, pick up with me in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works or of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, or the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it's impossible for those who are once enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and of the powers of the age to come, that, verse 6, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Verse 7. For the earth, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So the warning is, is to make sure that you're in the faith. That's the essence of the first few verses. Are you in the faith? Or are you born again? Or are you saved? Or like Paul would put it to the church in Corinth, you can jot it down in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he puts it this way. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? 
unless indeed you're disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. And all of us need to know if we're saved or not. And the instruction is to test yourselves and to ask the hard questions. And the question today is, do you have Jesus Christ in you? You see, it's not enough just to say, well, I believe in God. And I'm sure as you've shared the gospel with folks that you have heard them say, oh, I believe in God. I believe in God. That, that's not enough because you need to define who that God is. You can't just say, well, I believe in God. I'm a very spiritual person. I do a lot of good works. No, no. Do you believe in God the creator who loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for you? was buried and three days later rose again from the dead. Why? So that you might have the forgiveness of your sins. You know, of all the problems that people face today, the greatest problem they need to deal with is sin. Because it's sin that erodes and sin that destroys. And friend, the reality is this. The wages of sin is always death. The end of sin is not going to be a very pleasing experience for those who, that have rejected Jesus Christ. I know it's not a popular message in society today. It's not, never been a popular message. But to those who know Jesus Christ personally, it's a powerful message. A life-transforming message. Do you really have Jesus in you? Have you repented of your sins? Do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life according to Romans chapter 8? Do you love the brethren according to 1 John chapter 3? Do you practice righteousness according to 1 John chapter 2? And I think those are good questions to ask ourselves. Good questions to review. Am I saved? And some would say, wait a minute, pastor. Is it even possible that I can know I'm saved this side of eternity? Like, is it possible that I can know today that I'm saved? And the answer is yes. Now, I know some of you grew up in a religious system that taught you that you won't know if you're saved until you get there. That's the worst time to find out. Because many people will stand before God and hear these words. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Why? Because I never knew you. You can go through all the religious motions that have been taught to you over the years and still not be saved. You could be sitting in this church, listening to this Christian radio station, watching on your computer and not be saved. You can desire the things of God. You can enjoy the things of God. You can own a Bible and a Christian t-shirt and a cross as a necklace and still not be saved. Jesus put it this way, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. It must be a work that God does in your life. And in order to be born again, you turn away from your sinful past. You turn your life away from your sins and you embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ in your life. You can know. Here's what the Bible says in 1 John 5, verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know you have eternal life. Listen, the whole gospel of John. Now in the Bible, it's divided into two parts. The, old, the, the first part we refer to as the Old Testament. And the right-hand side of your Bible, the newer part we refer to the New Testament. In the New Testament, it starts out with the book Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And these are known as the Gospels. And they are three books of the Bible that chronicle highlights and episodes in the life of Jesus Christ. And they kind of overlap. They're known as the Synoptic Gospels. 
But there's a fourth book. It's known as the Gospel of John. And the main reason why the Gospel of John was written was so that those who read it would believe on Jesus Christ. That's why when you're sharing with people and you're talking to them about faith and you're talking to them about salvation, give them a Bible and tell them to read the Gospel of John. It's one of the books of the Bible that God uses the most to bring people to faith in him. You can know. You can be confident in your salvation. Notice verse 9 now. He makes a contrast to those that maybe were doubting or really going through and wanting to go backwards. He makes a contrast and he says, But you, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. These are powerful verses. There are things that accompany salvation. Really what he's saying is, if you're a believer, we're going to be able to see it in your life. There are things that accompany salvation. Look at some of the things that he mentions. First of all, he mentions that not only is it better things, but he says, God is not unjust to forget your work. And so works accompany salvation. Secondly, labor of love. Again, on the, the scope of works, you see people doing things motivated by love. Thirdly, notice ministry to the saints. That's where the church family comes together. And you start serving one another. That accompanies salvation. And then in general, he says at the end of verse 10, just ministry or service. Your life, if you are born again, you will be a different person. Things will change in your life. And let me just say this. Salvation is a better experience than those that are not saved. It is better to be saved than unsaved. It is better to know Jesus Christ than to reject him. It is better to repent of your sins than to continue living in them. There are better things for you and me in Jesus Christ. That's a distinction. It is not better to resist Jesus. That's not a better thing. That's actually a worse condition. Let me put it this way. For those of you that have heard the gospel, and those of you that understand the gospel, and you say, Ed, well, what's the gospel? Well, it's very simple. Sin has separated you from God. What you might call mistakes or imperfection, God calls sin. And sin has separated all of us from God. That's our biggest issue. And the reality of sin in your life is that you now live a life pleasing yourself and not your creator. Some people have gone so far as to replace the creator with all fanciful philosophies and theories and all sorts of things that just eliminate the need for a creator altogether. Any moral responsibility or requirements are just erased in these fanciful philosophies. But no matter, it doesn't matter. Whether you acknowledge God or not, God is real, he exists, he created you and you're accountable to him. And the greatest response that you can have is to admit that you've sinned and to receive the forgiveness that's available from God. And you go, wait a minute, where did that forgiveness come from? Why, why would God forgive me? What is it in my life that I have to offer to God in order for him to forgive me? And that's a great question to ask. The answer is, you have nothing to offer God. All of your good deeds, everything you've done that might be good or might have any kind of merit or, or any kind of, of goodness attached to them, don't measure up to the perfection that God requires. And because of that, God took care of it on our behalf. And he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Perfection in human form. God met us. He didn't require us to climb up and meet him where he was. 
God met us where we are. And I have to say, some of us were a lot lower and deeper in sin than others. But nonetheless, we were all met by the love of Jesus Christ. It's an act of love for God's surrender on your part, God's sacrifice on your part. It's out of love. Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived for three, well, he lived for 30 plus years, but he lived the last three years of his life loving, serving, healing, feeding, and teaching us the way to be right with God. And what was his reward? A few people followed him, but most people hated him. And there was a small group of people that plotted to kill him and they nailed him on a Roman cross, an instrument of torture. And he died a torturous death. An innocent man didn't do anything wrong in his life. And they took him down off the cross and they placed him into a tomb and sealed it, thinking that they had done away with this man named Jesus. And yet three days later, Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. He's alive right now. He's alive right now, energizing the very words of Scripture to reveal to you his great love. It's hard to conceive, I understand. Some of you are listening to me right now and you just don't believe it. You just don't believe it. I remember sitting in a very same position that you were, sitting way back in the back and thinking, I, I just don't believe this thing about God's love. I don't believe it. I don't believe that God loves somebody like me. Maybe other people in this room, but as bad as I am and the things I've been involved in, and the things that, that I've done that have irreparably harmed people, I, I just didn't believe that God loved me. And yet I was constantly pointed to the cross. That's the proof of love. It's not whether you feel it. It's not whether you even personally experience it at the outset. It starts with faith. Believing what God has said. Do you know Jesus Christ, he rose again from the dead. 500 people saw Jesus personally. 500 people who were mostly the 500 people, that means most of them would have been alive when the documents of the Bible were written. And they could have easily said, oh, that's a lie. That's not true. They say, I'm one of the 500 and I didn't see him. But nobody, there's no one ever in history that that was recorded. Not only that, but Jesus' best friends, we refer to them as the apostles or the disciples, 11 of them, because one of them committed suicide, because of his, his betrayal of Jesus Christ. But the other 11, do you know that each and every one of them died a martyr's death, clinging to the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Not any of them at any time did they say, oh no, it's all made up. No, it's not true. No, they said, not only is it true, I'm willing to lose my life over it. My life is already hidden in Christ. And the good news is to you today, the good news is this, that if you acknowledge that you have sinned against God and you accept the free gift of salvation from him, the Bible says you'll be saved, that you'll be forgiven of your sins. You know, on one of the stops on our Israel tour at the end, it's usually the final stop. We come to a place known as the Garden Tomb. It's in the shadow of a, a mountain or a little hill behind it that's known as Golgotha. And it has kind of a picture of a skull right in the rocks there. And the tomb, many believe that's the tomb. We don't know exactly what tomb it is, but many believe that's the tomb. And it has a lot of the things that would line up with the biblical, biblical account. And everyone on our tour, every time that we've gone there, we all stick our head in there or even walk inside. And you know what happens? We all find out that the tomb is empty. 
Nobody's in it. Whether that's the tomb or not, whether that's the tomb or not, whether it's somewhere else, and a lot of theories on that holds, it doesn't matter. Whatever tomb we look into that they say Jesus was in, he's not. He's now ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father, ready to return according to his promise at any moment. Listen, it's imperative that you receive Jesus Christ in your life. There is no second or third or fourth alternative. You may have been taught growing up that all roads lead to God. And you interpreted that as well. Whatever path I choose, I'm going to end up at God anyway. Can I just say there is a partial truth to that? All roads that people choose will end up at God. But most people will be shocked and surprised that they chose the wrong road. And they ended up at God, the judge. And you'll be judged for your rejection of Jesus. You go, I'm not rejecting Jesus. I just don't believe. Listen, your refusal to believe in Jesus Christ is rejection. You are saying that I hear what you're saying, Pastor, but I don't believe it, I don't accept it, and I don't want it for my life. And many people, even in the presence of Jesus, did the same thing and will pay the eternal consequence for it. But see, there are better things for you that are saved. It's a better life to be lived. I can testify that living for Jesus Christ is a far better life than I ever lived for myself. It's far better. And what he says here is, I am confident for better things concerning you. And the only way you'll experience better things is by accepting Jesus Christ into your life. The better things are the, the, the new work that comes in your life, the transformed life. The greatest thing that comes from a changed life is now you are serving Jesus Christ. That good works are flowing from your life as a believer. You're moving on the things that accompany salvation. You're beginning to serve and obey. And it's interesting in verses 7 and 8 that the picture of a field is mentioned because it's, we don't really think this way because the first century was primarily an agrarian society. And what that means is they worked the land. They had the land. They planted seed. They grew their own fruit. They grew their own stuff. They had their own animals. They basically took care of things themselves. Well, we don't really live in a society like that. You know, we've gone from an industrial society to more of a technological and consumer-oriented society where, but still, when we go to Safeway and we buy an orange, you know somebody planted a seed, a tree grew, and an orange was produced. It was the fruit of that natural relationship of that tree putting its roots down into the ground and somebody took care of it. Somebody went out and picked. Somebody put it in a box. Somebody sent it to the market. That's the society that he's referring to. And one of the ways that God describes works from our lives is actually the word fruit. Would you turn to Galatians chapter 5? This is a better thing that accompanies salvation. And that's the fruit of God in and through your life. This is what God produces. You don't need to do these things. They come through an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the greatest change. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 after dealing with the works of the flesh and all the sinful behaviors, you can read that on your own, starting in verse 16, but come to verse 22 with me and notice the contrast. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and it's with its passions and desires... If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk 
in the Spirit. One of the first scriptures I was ever instructed to memorize was Galatians 5, 22, 23, and 24. To look for these things in my life. And some commentators believe that the fruit of the Spirit is actually singular. And everything else flows from it. And I can see that. That the fruit of the Spirit is love. The agape love of God and then everything flows from love. And I can see that. But notice what comes in your lives. Love, joy, peace, patience. The patience of God is yours. Kindness. You know, a better thing that accompanies salvation is you're a kinder person. You're a person that's more patient. You're a person that has the peace of God because you have peace with God. You're a person that's filled with joy even though sometimes you're sad and yet you have the joy of the Lord. You're a person that manifests the love of God. Imagine that. These are things we take for granted. You've become a faithful person. Why? Because of God living in you. You've become more gentle. And notice, one of the most underrated fruit of the Spirit is self-control. How much self-control is in this room right now because God lives in you? You know, a lot of times we take credit for the self-control that God gave us. So, you know, I didn't blow up because I bit my tongue, Pastor. Well, stop biting your tongue. That's pretty painful. Just yield to the Holy Spirit, and he'll give you the self-control that you need. And you won't be yelling anymore. You won't be punching holes in walls. Uh, You won't be trying to control things and and all angry and out of control. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has given you self-control. And you're a better person because of God living in you. These are the things you're looking for. The fruit of God. It's not any effort on your part. But at the same time, believers are marked by their good works. Good works come from believers. And yet, we're not saved by good works. So don't confuse the reality that because good works come from your life, that that's the reason you're saved. No, the Bible makes it super clear that we're saved by the grace of God, that there isn't one of us that deserve it. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is where paying attention to the prepositions are very important. We're not saved by good works, no. We're saved for good works, yes. It's very important. Works are to come from your life. He says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James would put it this way in James chapter 2, verse 14. What is a prophet, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what is that profit? Thus also by itself, if it does not have works faith is dead. Saying you have faith, saying you believe in God, but have no corresponding good works that reflect the fruit of the Spirit is dead faith. Martin Luther put it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. In other words, it will be accompanied by good works. We'll pause our study right here and have the rest for you tomorrow on Abounding Grace. Pastor Ed Taylor's message is titled, Patiently Waiting on the Promises of God. You can hear it again at AboundingGraceRadio.com. 
or through our church app. Do a search for Ed Taylor in the App Store or Google Play to download that to your mobile device. Our friend in the ministry, Pastor Skip Heitzig, has a great book that we'd like to get into your hands, and it's our featured resource this month. It's called How to Study the Bible and Enjoy It. Maybe you find it difficult to study the Word, aren't getting a lot out of it, or enjoying it for that matter. Well, in his friendly, relevant style, Pastor Skip provides wonderful, simple-to-use tools to help you enjoy Bible study. And we'll send it your way for a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace today. Call toll-free 877-30-GRACE. Again, we're at 877-30-GRACE. And thank you for your support, as it allows us to bring the teaching of God's Word to stations like this every day. We're constantly hearing from folks all over the world that are being blessed, and your gifts help to make that possible. You can donate through our website at AboundingGraceRadio.com. How has Abounding Grace blessed you? We want to hear. And it's easy to share your thoughts and prayer requests at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Scroll down to the bottom of our homepage and connect with us. We'll return to Hebrews next time out on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We'll see you then. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. 